So when we get to the last verses of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, we haven't gotten to the good part, but we've gotten to an important part. And there are three people mentioned there that are very, very, very important, very important even when it comes to the New Testament. Any guesses on who those three people are? Well, if you're guessing Moses, Elijah, and the Lord, you've guessed right. Moses, Elijah, and the Lord are there in Malachi chapter 4 at the very end. Moses representing the law of God. Elijah representing the prophets who preach the law of God, obey or else. And the Lord, who in Malachi 4 is described as coming to earth one day to bring condemnation or salvation, depending on your position. What's important about all of this is the fact that Jesus relates all of that that to himself in what we as Christians call the transfiguration. So we're going to talk about the transfiguration today. It's a massively important event when it comes to Jesus and his ministry. It's in the 17th chapter of the gospel, according to Matthew. You can join me in looking at that chapter if you would. And we're, we are going to learn about the transfiguration of Jesus. If you don't know what that is, you came to the right place. We'll explain it. But what happens there has everything to do with connecting the dots, with fitting the big picture together between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Malachi chapter 4, Moses, Elijah, and the Lord, because all three of those individuals are there at the transfiguration. And so we are going to hopefully have a wonderful time at the feet of Jesus, if you will, learning how the whole Bible fits together and how Jesus is the preeminent one worthy of our trust, worthy of our following. Indeed, he is the great Savior. And so, again, I hope you found Matthew chapter 17. It will be our text. We're going to look at the first 13 verses. And without any more introduction, we start by learning of the setting, the location in verse 1. Let's go ahead and read that. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Some people think it's Mount Tabor. Some think it's Mount Hermon. We don't know, and it ultimately doesn't matter unless you're in the shrine building business. Uh, some are, unfortunately, uh, but we don't know. It says it's a high mountain there, and so we're going to say that they're on a high mountain by themselves. It's significant and it's important. And what else is kind of exciting is these three individuals don't even realize they're about ready to get scared out of their minds. And I kind of like that. It won't be for fear of heights either. So let's see the event now. The event in verse 2, and he was transfigured. There's our word. He was transfigured before them. And it's the word in the, New Te- in the Greek New Testament, it's the word that comes almost directly over into English for metamorphosis. There was a metamorphosis that took place. There was a change that took place. He, he, they still recognize that it's Jesus, we'll see in a moment, so it's not a, uh, an altogether change, it's not a change in his essence, but he looks different. He looks strikingly different than he normally would look. 
And so let's look at verse 2 where we continue on where it says, And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Luke's account in chapter 9 says this, The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Now why, why all of this? Well, it's really important that we see that Jesus is not only the one who grew up in the wrong town, Nazareth, nothing good came out of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus was lowly, meek, and mild. True, true, true. Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. True. Uh, Jesus... Um, Son of a carpenter, at least in one sense, a tinkerer, uh, a fix-it man. Uh, he, he doesn't come from royalty on so many levels. It's humility. It's also important. So we, we're going to see splendor. We need to remember there's, there's actually more to the story of humility. But also, and even maybe more importantly, now that Jesus has really uh, set his face to Jerusalem, if you will, that now the cross is coming and it's coming quickly, what's going to happen? He's going to suffer. He's going to be mocked, persecuted. Then he will be treated as the worst kind of criminal, like a, an insurrectionist. Crucifixion wasn't normal. Crucifixion w- would be for the, the real bad actors. So the Romans are going to crucify him. We're going to have Jesus crucified, mocked, crucified, executed, horrific, terrible. And the disciples at least won't ever be able to get it out of their mind. They might not understand all things, but at least they've seen this preview of His glory first. Riveted in their minds, they'll be able to see through the lens when they see the cross and they see all these things happening, they'll be able to at least see it differently because they've had a preview of majesty. And I'm going to use that word on purpose because Peter himself later will talk about it as majestic. Okay, majesty, that's a kingly term. That's a term for royalty. They see him as one who is the the king, the Messiah, the Christ, splendid, extraordinary, not not ordinary, unique. And so they're going to have the mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences to help them, to sustain them, to help them to interpret even the meaning about all of the bad that is about to come. That's why we have the metamorphosis. He is the king of glory. He is the king of kings, even though for a time it's definitely not going to look like it. Then verse 3 says, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. They're representing the Old Testament. They're representing Israel. All that history. And they're talking to Jesus. Ever wonder about what they're talking about? I'm asking you to wonder about that right now if you've never wondered about it before. But we don't have to wonder very long because actually in Luke's account, we're given some insider secrets. Okay? Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Then 31 says, who appeared in glory... And this is really good and really important. Don't miss this. And spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and they're talking about his departure at Jerusalem. Well, we've already learned that he's, he, he said he has to go to Jerusalem in chapter 16 to be crucified. And he'll be raised from the dead, yes, but so it's, it's a euphemism. It's a nice way of, uh, of saying he, he's, he's going to go. Be, it's, it's shorthand for his substitutionary work. He's going to depart. He's going to depart the life of the living, right? The realm of the living. He's going to die. He's going to be crucified. They're discussing his departure. They're discussing his cross work. Fascinatingly enough, which he was about to accomplish. Who talks about accomplishing death? It doesn't even make sense. Unless we're talking about Jesus and we already have been paying attention to Matthew. He came to save his people from their sins. In chapter 20, in chapter 20, he says, I will give my life as a ransom for, operative word, for, substitutionary, for many. His departure is a substitutionary departure. It's a redeeming departure. It's his cross work. And you accomplish that. He's going to accomplish it. He's going to do it. He's going to succeed because he's doing what he's going to do as a work to be done for others. I love the verbiage. He's going to accomplish his death. He's going to accomplish his departure. It's all purposeful. It's all deep. I give it five out of five stars. Okay. I mean, you go, that's, a, that's, a, that's so rich with, with, with significance and meaning. You may also want to know that, which is important and interesting, the word that he, um, that is translated in the translation I'm preaching from right now, accomplish is the same word that's oftentimes uh, translated fulfill. He's going to go and do what he does in Jerusalem to bring fulfillment. Which makes a whole lot of sense if we're talking with Moses and Elijah. He's going to fulfill what they themselves spoke about. He's the ultimate. He's the end game. He's the significant one, ultimately. He's going to accomplish. He's going to fulfill through his departure. So when I ask you the question, why is it a good idea to believe in Jesus as your King and Savior? I hope you'd have a long list. But to add to your list, I would suggest, because Moses and Elijah think it's a good idea. (laughs) Why believe in Jesus? Because the Old Testament would say, that's a good idea. You should do that. Moses and Elijah standing there with him, talking about this. It's as if they're saying, yep, that's right. Yep, that's what he's going to do. It's as as if he's saying to every Jewish person, they're saying, that's right, we're with him. We're not against him. We're actually for him. This is the right thing to be doing. I also think it's interesting that standing by him, Moses and Elijah, he's their savior. According to the book of Hebrews, I'm thinking of like chapter 9. There's only one true ultimate mediator. There's only one true ultimate way to have your sins atoned for, and it's through Jesus. Hebrews 9 talks about that, even relating to those who were under the old covenant, Old Testament saints. And so while we're on this side of Calvary, they're on the other side of Calvary, but there's only ultimately one mediator. He's their savior, and he hasn't even gone to the cross yet. Fascinating. 
now we come to Peter's response, and all you have to hear is me say that, and you think, it's going to be good. Right? We've learned enough to know now that uh, while you, you know you should look away, you can't help yourself. Right? <laughs> Whatever he says, you want to go. Let's, let's, see, let's see how this is going to go. Um, and it won't disappoint. It says in verse 4, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. So far, so good? I think so far, so good. This, this is positive, right? This is good that we're here. Then he says, if you wish, I think that's good too. He's learning to nuance things. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So P- Peter sees a good thing and recognizes it and just steps into it. And, and so how about if we make this permanent? Well, may, maybe not permanent. He says tents. Um, and so how, how about if we make it semi-permanent? I mean, let's just slow everything down and just stay here for a while because I know a good thing, and it is a good thing. But we know, and our Lord knows, and our Father in heaven is going to interrupt him, we're going to see in a minute, he knows, that apart from Jerusalem, there's no accomplishing. Apart from Calvary, there's no atonement. He needs to go to accomplish, right? It has to happen. And so while Peter, bless his heart, sees a good thing, it's not altogether good. I like what Luke's, Luke's commentary says about this in Luke 9.33. It says the exact same things we're talking about here. And then at the end of 9.33, there's a dash, and it says, not knowing what he said. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you know it or not, but that's on Peter's tombstone. <laughs> Simon Peter, not knowing what he said. <laughs> I actually have never seen that when I've been in Rome on anything, but I think it should be there, um, but I digress. He just doesn't, he doesn't realize that that's actually not what we want to do. It's like when, when you have the, the ultimate chef who's giving you the ultimate appetizer and that's all you want to eat because you don't know any better. But the chef knows better. That's just the appetizer. Actually, there's something greater happening. There's something more to come. This is great. You're right, Peter, but it can't stop here. Now, before we do move on to the interruption, this is just an aside. But since Christians want to know about heaven and we want to know about eternal life and the Bible tells us a lot, but it doesn't tell us everything, sometimes we speculate and we wonder, am I going to know my loved ones? Am I going to recognize them? Am I going to recognize other people? Am I going to recognize famous people? Am I going to recognize Paul or Peter? Or This text might help us a little bit. One of my favorite theologians, um, Francis Turretin, says this, if Peter, James, and John were able, in that light of Christ's transformation to recognize Moses and Elijah not seen before talking with Christ, who will deny this knowledge to the saints translated to heaven where the light will be purer and knowledge far clearer? It's Turretin, so I have to say, in other words, (laughs) one would surmise, we'll be glorified. They weren't. So we'll even be in a better state. It would be a pretty good guess to conclude we'll probably recognize people. They'd never seen him before, but they know it's Moses and they know it's Elijah. I hope so. Don't know for sure. 
And now the interruption. Peter's talking, and then verse 5 says, He was still speaking. When, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And you don't have to know much about the Old Testament to go, that's what happens when God is around. That's a unique kind of thing. It didn't happen regularly in the Old Testament. But when it does happen, we're like the presence of God. Just as an example, Exodus chapter 40, verse 30, 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So here's this cloud overshadowing. So there's something unique, extraordinary going on here. And we're going to see it is unique and extraordinary. It says in verse 5, if we keep reading, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's the best part of the whole passage, in my opinion, so I'm going to read it again. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's not the first time we've heard it. We've heard those same words at Jesus' baptism in chapter 3. But now there's a lot more water under the bridge, no pun intended, a lot more water under the bridge, and now the disciples know more, and they've seen more, they've experienced more. You know, by now, they've seen Jesus act messianically a lot. Eyewitnesses, he's been doing all the things a Messiah would do to qualify to be the Messiah. Not only that, he's um, been speaking like the Messiah would speak and what, how he's explained things and done things over and over again. He's been authenticated. And now complementing that with an exclamation point, the voice of his father affirming, right? He, he's affirming what they've concluded in chapter 16. Indeed, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. What a way to be credentialed from none other than God speaking to them so that they might hear the invisible God. Wow. Let's take a few more moments and talk about why this is so remarkable. It's remarkable because God's doing something He doesn't normally do. But it's remarkable when we work our way through each of the statements that are made because they're weighty with significance. Jesus is claimed as the Son. My Son. That's a big deal, no doubt. He's the one. But it's also a big deal if we think in terms of bigger Bible picture, even Old Testament, and I remind you of this often, I won't apologize, but I do remind you of it often. Sometimes in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's Son. And I don't think we're reading too much into it with Moses and Elijah representing the Old Testament, representing Israel. And now Jesus is being called the Son. Oh, and by the way, in just a little while, Moses and Elijah are going to disappear. Not because they're not important, but they're not the preeminent ones. So Israel has been a son. Unfaithful, 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 unfortunately. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Oh, Luke's account of this same thing not only says my beloved son, but also in Luke's account, 
says, my chosen one, Luke 9.35. That's remarkable. That's remarkable because my chosen one, my elect one, my uniquely chosen one, because that, that would be big in and of itself, but that also is used in reference to Israel in the Old Testament. My chosen. But now we have capital C-H. I like it that it even translated that or, or, or wrote it that way in the translation I'm using. My chosen one, capital chosen one. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, the Messianic prophecy. Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen. Oh. He's not the shadow. He's not the type. He's not the in anticipation. He's the fulfillment. He's the one. He's absolutely the one. Furthermore, it's remarkable because Jesus is claimed to be the Son with whom the Father is well pleased. Let's make a list of all of the other people that God the Father has said He's well pleased with. Pretty short list. He doesn't say it about Moses. doesn't say it about Elijah. They're, they're important, significant. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. See, he's the only one who can save his people from their sins because he doesn't have any sins. Oh, him. Him. It's actually even better than uh, first glance, I think, as far as um, significance. The language that he uses and the tense that he uses, the verb tense, grammar scholars tell us, don't take my word for it. You could translate it this way. I have become well-pleased. I have become well-pleased. And at first, I, I, I have kind of the weird puzzled look. Like, I've become well-pleased. Why would it be I've become well-pleased? That, that doesn't seem to make sense. Hasn't he always been pleased with his son? I think the answer would be, yeah. Hasn't Jesus always been sinless? Yeah. Hasn't he always done the right thing? Yes. He was pleased with his son before the incarnation, for that matter. How, why, how is it, I ask you, he could become well-pleased with him? Well, not in the sense that he wasn't pleased before, but now he is. But he has been pleased. He continues to be pleased because the son keeps pursuing his father's will. We talked about that last time. Jesus keeps doing the father's will. He keeps obeying. With every day that passes, there's more and more obedience. There's more and more pleasing his father. Oh, why would that be important? Well, it would be important if we need a savior who fulfills all righteousness, meets the obligation. This affects what we call in theology the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ. He's always doing the right thing. So God sees us, if He's our substitute, as those who have always done the right thing even though we haven't. So we have our sins forgiven, yes, but it doesn't bring us to zero. We have, we're, not, we're positively, we've done the right thing. I have become well-pleased. Jesus is doing the right things again and again and again on behalf of his people as the last Adam, if you will. Well, before we move on, 
one more point of significance about that statement. Jesus is said to be the one who we should listen to. Listen to Him. That's significant just because, but it's also significant because that's almost taking words out of Moses' mouth. And I realize that seems really weird because God has a prophet whose name is Moses, so it's actually God. But that's how Moses talked in Deuteronomy. Listen to one who will come later more than you would listen to me. There's a greater one coming. Huh. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says. From among you, from your brothers, and then here's the punchline. It is to him you shall listen. Pretty big deal. And, and as, I'm not just speculating that it's meant to have these dots connected. Peter actually connects the same dots in Acts chapter 3, and he references Deuteronomy chapter 18, saying, It's Jesus. Even Moses said, listen to him. There's a greater Moses coming. There's a greater mediator coming. There's a greater prophet coming. And you know what? Even Moses talked about him. And so I love it that the father here in the presence of Moses and Elijah and Jesus and the disciples watching on says, this is my beloved son, my chosen one with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And if Moses were a Baptist at that point in time, he would have said, Amen. That's what I've been telling him since Deuteronomy 18. That's right. I'm with God. <laughs> As the prophet of God. That's what I've been saying all along. And so I'm making a big deal out of this because we're starting to see, again, the, this, this connection here and the significance. Malachi 4, at the very end, wrapping up the Old Testament and now we're into the new, new covenant era. Moses and Elijah saying amen, if you will. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. And now we're going to see that then they fade into the distance. Not that they weren't important, but they weren't the end game. They weren't the ultimate. It's all coming together, folks. It's fascinating. We're moving from shadow to substance. Now, I hope you're ready for the reaction of the disciples because that's what's next, and it's good. Verse 6 says, When the disciples heard this, and I would take it, not the message per se, because why would you be afraid of the message? You'd be encouraged by the message. So I would take it that the this is when they hear the voice of God. Okay? I could be wrong, but I'm going to take it that way. When the disciples heard this, the voice of God Almighty, they fell on their faces and were terrified. My question, and, and we know it's not just respect, I bow down because they're not just bowing down in respect, which would be good to do. They're bowing down and it specifically tells us they're terrified. They're scared out of their minds. Here's my question for you. Is that the right response? It's kind of a trick question. I think it's the right response. It's the right response until it's not the right response. Nuance is important. I would say it's the right response because at least at first blush, first look, God Almighty, the Sovereign One, the One who's the Creator of heaven and earth, the One who knows all things, including the sinfulness of the human heart, and He's talking to sons of Adam, sinners, 
right? The one who will judge justly and give people what they deserve. And you hear his voice, be terrorized by his voice. That would be the right response. That would be the reasonable response. It's the right response until it isn't the right response. Because let's keep reading. Verse 7 says, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Hmm. I think we should probably go with what Jesus says. and um, It's not the right response. <laughs> but why would that be? It's not the right response because He's their Savior. It's not the right response because He came to save His people from their sins. It's not the right response because they found shelter from God's wrath in Him. They're united to Him by faith. They have a mediator, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? So they don't have to be afraid because they find shelter in Him. And, and the Father has said, I'm well pleased with Him. I want to be united by faith to the one the Father is well pleased with. It only makes sense. So it actually is a good thing. Get up. Don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. And by way of application, this is a good one you can take home with you. If you don't have to be afraid of the God who knows everything, even your worst everything, what do you have to be afraid of? So that's going to help me with my struggles with certain fears. Everything else is lesser. I don't have to be afraid of God. I don't have to be terrorized by God. No. Why would I be afraid of anything? Just one more thought. By way of contrast, if Judas would have been with them, Jesus wouldn't have touched him and Jesus wouldn't have told him to get up and Jesus wouldn't have told him to not be afraid. Hashtag hard truth. Jesus is not his mediator. He's on his own. Utter terror. That's why you need to trust in Christ. Verse 8 says, then let's keep moving. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I've been suggesting that and telling you that, but now we have it actually there. So again, not, not derogatory, not bashing Moses and Elijah. They're really, really important, but they played a certain role, and it's not the role of preeminence. Then verse 9 says, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man, the Messiah, is raised from the dead. Reminiscent of chapter 16, verse 21. Why would that be the case? It'd be the case because it's not time yet, and we don't want Jesus mistaken for someone who He is not. But also, it would be the response because we've already seen by now the disciples sometimes know some things well. They know some truth well, but they don't understand the whole picture yet, and so they get things wrong. When the resurrection happens, once the redemptive work is complete, you'll be able to see the whole picture and you'll be able to explain it. You'll be able to explain it rightly. But wait till then to do it. Wait till then to do it. And we do know according to Luke chapter 9, they do. They obey. 
But after the resurrection, you need to know this. They preach the gospel like it ain't never been preached before. <laughs> in, in Acts chapter 3, if you need something great to read today that connects a lot of these dots, Acts chapter 3, Peter is on fire. I mean, he's, I mean, he, he's, he's talking about the Moses thing. He's talking about Elijah. He's calling the people to repentance. He's calling them to believe in Jesus. And he's con- masterfully connecting the dots from Old Testament to New that Jesus is the one. It, it so badly makes me want to preach the book of Acts. It just makes your head spin. You say, wow. So they, they do obey, but when it's time, it is time. Okay, let's transition just a little bit and we'll go to verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 and then wrap up. Verse 10 says, And the disciples asked him, Then, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Apparently that's an objection. Why do some of the religious leaders say, uh, Jesus can't be the Messiah because according to Malachi, you have to have Elijah come first and then then Messiah comes. And so they're saying, hey, there's a chronology error here. He can't be the Messiah because we don't have Elijah yet. And as a clock is right twice a day, even if it's a stopped clock, they're right. And Jesus affirms the scribes, at least in this. So verse 11 says, he answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. So in that sense, he's agreeing with their interpretation of Malachi chapter 4. Elijah does come. I will point out to you that the tense there is also interesting. Um, Elijah does come. It's, it's this... It's not that he came. He's going to say that, but he, he does come. And actually, that is theologically important as well because in Acts 3 in Peter's sermon... He talks about this, the, the ongoing effects, the ongoing implications uh, of Elijah coming in the form of John the Baptist, yes, but it actually has influence that will carry us all the way to the second coming. And so I won't get into Acts 3 now, but uh, you could even translate it, Elijah indeed comes. There's this continuing validity kind of thing in the present tense. Then verse 12 says, But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So notice the terrible, horrific contrast. If Elijah is a prophet of God in verse 12, and they didn't listen, bad, bad actors, and they did whatever they pleased, so they don't obey God through the prophet, they do whatever they want to do, so it's going to end badly. And the logic then is in verse 12, so also the Son of Man, the Messiah, will certainly suffer at their hands. And I'm stressing certainly for two reasons. One is logic says this will certainly happen. So John the Baptist is the forerunner, the one who, who announces, who says, get, get ready, here he comes. And what do they do? They kill him. And so it certainly makes sense that they're not going to treat the Messiah positively because they didn't treat the forerunner positively. But I'm also going to stress the word certainly for another reason. And that's, they're going to treat him badly according to divine decree. Certainly there's going to be the crucifixion. Certainly because of Isaiah chapter 53. Certainly because he lays his life down as a ransom for many. Certainly, most certainly, most certainly this is going to happen because he's going to Jerusalem to bring fulfillment 
And so it's certain that it's going to happen. And then our final verse, and then I want to look at one other text briefly. You'll appreciate it, I promise. Verse 13 first says, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Ah, they say. Ah, we get it. We're, we're getting better at hermeneutics. We're getting better at how to interpret the Bible. Uh, we see, we're starting to figure out how Jesus does this. Oh, Elijah. Oh, John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah. Oh, we're learning how to interpret prophecy better because Jesus is helping us to understand. So they, they were in the back of the class and now they're moving up toward the front of the class because they're starting to understand better what, how Jesus looks at things. So I would, I would caution, I, I would just want to say, let's, I think we should learn from that too. In conclusion, we have to look at 2 Peter chapter 1. We, we, just, we absolutely have to look at 2 Peter 1 because Peter talks about the transfiguration in 2 Peter. So I'm going to read a couple of verses there. You can join me if you'd like to. This is the negative fruit, if you will. It's kind of a weird way to say it. The, the, the positive fruit of all of this in Peter's life is he is going to preach when it's time to preach with boldness and clarity and precision and masterfulness. It's wonderful in Acts chapter 3. So there's the positive promotion of the gospel fueled by the transfiguration event, putting the pieces together. It really will be amazing. The negative fruit is, Second Peter, Peter is in the defensive stance. That's what I mean by negative defending the one true gospel with all of his heart and what's fueling that defense against false teachers who attack the gospel in the name of God is he was an eyewitness not only to the other things that happened but he was an eyewitness on the mountain to the transfiguration and it really shines through when it comes to how tenacious he is at defending the gospel. It's, it, 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 it rubs off on you. So let's go ahead and look at it, if you would, in chapter 1. This is 2 Peter chapter 1. And it says in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. So that amounts to name-calling, okay? So get your grubby hands off of the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's mocking, saying those are cleverly devised myths, okay? The false teachers uh, teach something else, but it's actually mythology. It's not true. It's not genuine. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses, not like the phony guys, with the promoting mythology in the name of God, here's my truth, here's how I feel, a warmth came over me, or whatever kind of shenanigans that they use to justify their false teaching. He's saying, no, we're eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. That's why I used that word early, uh, earlier. Of His majestic glory, of His kingliness, right? Your majesty, that's a word for a king. We saw his, his majestic glory. We were eyewitnesses. We were there. Don't listen to these other clowns, regardless of how nice they might look or how expensive their teeth might be. He says in verse 17, 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The true Jesus, right? Then end of quote, then verse 18 says, we ourselves, that's eyewitness emphasis, we ourselves heard, as I like to say, ear witness emphasis. We ourselves heard this very voice. Again, eyewitness born from heaven, not mythology from, from so and so. For we were with him, eyewitness on the holy mountain. I love the, I love the stoke, right? I love it that that's what the apostles who've been called the foundation of the church, witnessed and saw. And so they're so dogmatically passionate, rightfully so. We're not going to give an inch on this. And I love it that God used them, and now we have it in scripturated to help us with our stoke. That's right. We're not putting faith in faith. We're not putting faith in fantasy. We don't have to be misled by all kinds of loons who use our vocabulary but mean other things? No. Truth about Christ, life, death, resurrection, ascension, came to save His people from their sins. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come from me. That's right. That's right. So if you need some good reading today, Acts 3, 2 Peter. And I hope it works in your life in such a way by the power of the Spirit that you want to be a good truth-teller of the gospel, a better one than you are now, me a better one than I am now, and also that we can join together in a defensive stance that, no, I'm not going not to budge on this. Transfiguration. Massive event. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for this church. We don't know everything and we have so much that is not right. We know because we're sinners, but we're thankful to, to be joined together in loving Christ and having experienced His grace. We're thankful for other churches around the world where men and women and boys and girls gather and seek to rightly understand God's Word and to proclaim it and live lives of gratitude in response to it. May it be so for us in Jesus' name. Amen.